This is In the Weeds, the ultimate OLCC podcast. This is a special episode for the podcast featuring the leaders of the OLCC and WLCB in conversation about hemp. Here's what will be covered. What's ahead as states work to align with federal hemp standards? How hemp may find its way into Washington's retail marijuana stores? And what state regulators need to consider as they regulate two variations of one plant? Their thoughts on hemp, marijuana, and cannabis. All that and more coming up. I'm Mark Pettinger, this time without my colleagues Amanda Borup and TJ Sheehy. That's because this time it's not the three of us talking about issues. Instead, it's Steve Marks, Executive Director of the Oregon Liquor Control Commission, and Rick Garza, Director of the Washington Liquor and Cannabis Board, in conversation with Portland Business Journal reporter Pete Danko. The trio talked about regulating hemp at the Hemp and CBD Connects Conference in Portland in January 2020. Our friends at the Hemp and CBD Connects Conference thought a wider audience would enjoy Steve, Rick, and Pete's discussion, so we're grateful to them for letting us share it with you. But before we bring you that conversation, there's some housekeeping to take care of. This podcast is being recorded in February 2020, so anything regarding the rules communicated in this podcast may be superseded by podcasts after this one or in other communications from the OLCC. Our usual caveat, we call it Amanda's Rule, which is read the rules. So here's the official disclaimer. This podcast and the information contained or the information provided during this podcast is not a substitute for the rules or for knowing what the rules are. When in doubt about something you hear on this podcast, contact the OLCC for clarification. And the easiest way to do that is to write to us at marijuana at oregon.gov. So without further pontificating on my part, here's Steve Marks, Rick Garza, and Pete Danko at the Hemp CBD Connects Conference on January 29th, 2020, talking about regulators and hemp. Hello, everyone. And I really appreciate your attendance. I'm one of the two people that are uh, ownership of the company that's putting on the show today. And we're very passionate about education and making sure that the information gets out. And it tends to be um, the collaboration in these types of settings is, is very nice to be able to not only learn from the experts, but also talk amongst each other. I actually had a 502 uh, tier three uh, grow and processing in Washington back in 2014, but I've since transitioned into this realm to help uh, communicate and collaborate. So this particular session um, is about selling hemp in, uh, within the recreational uh, cannabis retail market. I know a lot of people are looking for ways to you know, move their hemp and quite clearly this is one option. Uh, I do wanna introduce uh, Pete Danko, who's in the middle here, he joined the Pittsburgh, the Pittsburgh, I'm from Pittsburgh, but from the, the Portland Business Journal uh, in 2016, and originally he was to cover uh, natural resources and energy, 
Um, and at that point, cannabis was a very small portion of his job, but quite clearly there's been a huge evolution over the years and the importance of cannabis in the community um, has grown. So he is now very focused on providing updates and informational pieces uh, about the industry, whether it be the traditional recreational medical market uh, and then also the hemp market. Um, and you know, with that, there's a lot of interest that's grown in the uh, general public to learn more about it. So he's here today to be able to talk and moderate between uh, uh, our two other speakers representing Washington and also representing or the state of Oregon. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Uh, it's great to be here, and I'll start off by thanking all of you who are in the industry for uh, providing uh, an endlessly fascinating um, sector to, uh, to cover. It's been, uh, as Michelle alluded to, it's been a surprise at, uh, to us at the Business Journal um, how, um, how much interest there's been um, among, our, among our readers. Uh, people tend to think of them as um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, Portland Business Alliance, uh, conservative. Um, uh, but uh, they have seen, I think, that this is a real business and it has real and substantial impact uh, uh, in, in Oregon. Um, and uh, I don't know Washington as well, but we'll learn more about Washington uh, today. Um, this year, this past year, was an amazing year for, for hemp and, and hemp coverage. Um, and we'll talk about uh, a lot of the, the varied issues that uh, came up in, in the course of the year, um, regulatory issues and legal issues. Um, uh, but I thought we'd start off by, by trying to answer um, that first uh, question that, that this, this panel is, uh, is titled on, and, and that is um, the, literally what you are able to do as a, as a hemp grower um, in the recreational uh, market. In, in your state, whether you're in Oregon or Washington. So we have, we have the two chief regulators uh, for, um, for the recreational marijuana programs uh, in, in Oregon and Washington, um, Steve Marks and Rick Garza. And uh, we'll start off with, uh, with Rick to talk about uh, what the rules are in, and the possibilities are in Washington for hemp growers, processors, whatever your business is for interacting with the um, with the recreational marijuana uh, sector. So good morning, everyone, and uh, thanks for the invitation. I can't like see anybody, so I usually would stand, but let me share one thing. Someone said we're experts. Let me tell you, I'm not an expert about hemp and CBD, and it's really fairly new. Just in the discussions I just had before we walked in here, there's a lot more activity in Oregon than Washington. Just because I'm interested, people from Washington who have licenses in Washington or in both states, just so I know how many are here. A few. Okay. So let, let me start with one thing because I want to back up into what you can do with respect to hemp, which is basically CBD uh, in our uh, rec market. Uh, think of the irony of the fact that we're trying to get um, a safe harbor banking bill out of the U.S. Senate right now, and we can't get that to move. Yet, interesting enough, a former uh, U.S. Senate Majority Leader decided that we were going to legalize hemp. So to me, it's just kind of the dysfunction of people not recognizing that cannabis is cannabis. 
uh, and the politics that, that happens there. But I would just say, as an editorial, we need a banking bill out of the Congress to allow this industry to do what everyone else does, uh, which is bank. And so I just think it's ironic that that happened through the Farm Bill with the provision that allows uh, hemp to be grown, um, yet we don't have some of the things that we need, some of the things that really make sense. And, and we've been to D.C., a number of us from Washington, to talk with our congressional delegation and others about moving forward and removing prohibition, especially as it relates to capital assets and banking and, and other financing that the business uh, should have the right to be involved in. So we're pretty small with respect to, and, and, and I can tell you we have very little authority, the uh, Liquor and Cannabis Board over hemp. That was done purposely. It's the Department of Agriculture that issues permits to this point has issued around 175 permits, pretty small. 30 licensees uh, that grow cannabis in our marketplace also have permits to grow. And really, um, it's been problematic, but it, it, it created a lot of discussions with the Department of Ag about how do people coexist, which is a question, because again, cannabis is cannabis, um, right? And so I think what I would say is um, a lot of the work that we've had uh, the last few months is trying to figure out, because what WSDA is doing is just simply providing a permit that allows you to grow. What happens with that byproduct, the processing that occurs, is not regulated, right? And then we have this other situation where the only thing in in Washington is CHABA, which, you, which if you know is cosmetic and beauty aids, topicals are allowed uh, by law in our marketplace, the legal marketplace, and in that which is not regulated. So Walgreens and the rest of them also sell Chava products. And then, as you know, um, CBD is being sold uh, just about everywhere, and much of it unregulated, and certainly unregulated in our marketplace um, also. Um, but, but I think um, what's important is, and I don't know what the uh, percentages are here, most of the folks that are getting permits in Washington to grow hemp are extracting to CBD. That's probably 98% of the marketplace right now. That's where it's going. That's why they want to do it, so they can get into the CBD market. I don't know if that's different than what's going on uh, in Oregon, but that's pretty much what people are doing in Washington. But as you can see with the number of, of licenses and permits that have been issued by the Department of Ag, there's not a lot of activity that's going on compared to what's happening uh, here in Oregon. So can those folks who have the hemp permits, can they sell into your regulated marijuana market? So we're in the process with a bill that's being introduced, because right now CBD has to have trace uh, elements of THC in it, because in our stores, the only thing you can sell is cannabis or cannabis-related product, and that definition is met by a small percentage of THC in it. So there's a bill that's being passed right now that would allow for not only Chava products, but all CBD products be sold at retail. I think one of the discussions that we're having right now is should it go under the same testing regimes that other product has in that store? What does that do the cost? And I think that's a big debate right now. Should it go, should it be tested in the same way uh, that all other product is being tested? And I, I suspect you all have different opinions with respect to that, I think our thought is, why wouldn't it be under the same regime as other product that's being sold? But we're open to hear why that might not need to be the case. And so, Steve, what's the uh, what's the situation in Oregon? 
Well, uh, thanks, and thanks for being here, Rick. I really appreciate you coming down to Oregon and uh, sharing your, your perspectives with us. Uh, you know, this industry is pretty incredible here. It's 65,000 acres in Oregon, and as Pete said, really blown up. And the economic contribution of that to the long-term future of the state is going to be, you know, substantial in the cannabis world. Um, I just, uh, by way of describing our system, think we'll just do a little historical vignette uh, that many of you will remember. When we got cannabis responsibilities, right, we were uncertain about uh, whether hemp products were going to be in the marijuana stores. Initially, we said yes, and then some FDA, gui FDA guidance came out, DEA, and we said no. Um, you fought very hard, the industry did to get approvals and packaging to come into the OLCC system with your hemp products. So we allowed that to happen, the commission did. Uh, and then there was legislation, right, that looked at uh, how hemp actually was intersecting with the new marijuana system. And there was a run on bringing product in that was less successful and then a successful run where you could elect to send lots of your project uh, product in, get it, uh, enroll it in tracking and metric, make it go through all the same testing as marijuana, and then pick a stream of marketing in the stores that was either hemp as a hemp product, or if it was mixed with marijuana, it became part of a marijuana product, product in, our, in our stores. Um, Hemp has become, in part, uh, an enforcement issue as well with the agency as you look because, you know, all of your uses, all of the product types except for high levels of THC are pretty identical to marijuana products and that's become to, uh, an issue. Uh, you know, we all know about the Idaho truckload that uh, got pulled over and, and, uh, and interdicted for a time. Um, but we have a lot of enforcement issues that are taking place because of the look-alike nature. So there's been this love affair between marijuana and hemp and, and a cannabis plant. Uh, and I'll say, you know, the, when our market got tough, when our licensing became slower, um, you know, a lot of our growers went over and produced hemp, and it was a, a savior, I think, for the industry that was struggling at the time, that had made plans to grow marijuana, and they could go over to the hemp market as long as you kept those operations all separate, and I think you know about this. So it's been an interesting experience, and I think we're reaching a new day with the requirements now with the uh, farm bill passing and its allowance and the state plans on looking at you know how we regulate the cannabis plant in, in its various parts. So you you both have uh, made a point that uh, it uh, it is all the same plant, and so does that mean that that even if nothing happens federally uh, legalization uh, of can of THC uh, cannabis uh, is that what we should call it? By the way, what what's the what kind of terminology should should we use? Uh, I, I know that I don't like the term marijuana. I know a lot of people don't like the term marijuana. Um, I'm just curious what 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 people think. Is it THC cannabis versus versus hemp? Yeah, any, any thoughts? Yep, yeah, Bo. 
Bo Whitney likes that idea. Um, if Bo likes it, I'll go with that. Um, so even if nothing happens federally, uh, what are we likely to see um, at the state level uh, when it comes to regulating that that plant, the the whole array? Um, are we likely to see developments either this year um, in the legislatures? Um, I think Rick alluded to some things that might be happening there. Steve, what do you see in, in Oregon uh, coming up? Well, I think um, Sonny was here just before and talked about some of the things that they're looking for in forming a commodity commission and helping us uh, match up or have exceptions to the way Oregon is going to find its way through federal planning. So that uh, looks very clear. In terms of the issues that are out there, I can tell you that tracking both in-state for transport is becoming an important issue to law enforcement generally, both in-state and in interstate commerce. Uh, I think the vape issue and lung illness and Evoli has put scrutiny over any hemp vape product um, that uh, is just like the marijuana product except for or the THC cannabis product um, uh, putting the same scrutiny on them because you know the additives the other component parts even if you're doing all of your work and matching our standards to be in the general marketplace for consumption uh, ingestion consumption is is an important issue and I think that's something that the, the uh, legislature and the industry are going to have to come to terms with this. How do some of these things that you do, similar to the way we regulate marijuana for consumers, need to be presented to the consumer market so they have more assurances of what are in the products? Now, I know in Oregon, we've got a better history than I think the rest of the world in terms of thinking about um, testing and certification of products that are going out in the marketplace but um, obviously um, the hemp side of the equation is is lagging behind our highly regulated high THC marijuana system so I think that's gonna can be a poignant issue for the industry but it, and on the other hand it's one that I think can distinguish uh, Oregon producers in a nationalized marketplace and what about in uh, in Washington, uh, Rick? Well, I think it's kind of interesting. The question was asked about cannabis. I tend to believe that cannabis is cannabis, and you're making a distinction between hemp and THC-potent uh, cannabis. Um, I mean, that it's interesting because we're highly regulated, too. I'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. And yet you've got a hemp product regulated by the Department of Agriculture. The only testing that's occurring is whether it meets a potency above the THC limit, so it has to be destroyed, so it can't move forward. No other regulations uh, impact that industry. And so I'm not suggesting that it should, but you can see there's a real difference between how we set up this system seven years ago and where we are now with hemp, and trying to figure out what that looks like. You know, you, you have discussions with the Department of Ag, and they say, we treat it like any other commodity. Because I was thinking up front when we met with them the first time, well, what are you going to do? You're going to regulate uh, the process, the, the growth, the processing, where it goes. You're going to track it. You're going to put it in a system. I said, absolutely not. That's not what we do with apples. All we do is give you a license or a permit to grow the apples. There's other departments that get involved in other aspects of it. So you can see already you're creating w one system that's not regulated much 
to one that is. And I think that's the part that we have to grapple with. And we need you to give us uh, input on that and review that to what should it look like when it enters our marketplace. I think the struggle right now from the industry that's regulated is it should be treated like other product. It should be tested like other product. And I, I'm, I'm not convinced that it should or it shouldn't be. Um, but that's, that's, that's a discussion right now that we're having in a proposal that's before the legislature to allow all CBD products to, to be sold in our retail market. And in fact, what the industry is asking for is to allow the FDA, when it does its rulemaking, to determine what should be done with this product. And, you know, the FDA is probably going to – we're going to hear from them maybe in like a year or longer. It'll be long. As you all know, there were hearings last fall and winter where hundreds of business got up to, to share their experience and the fact that they were selling <clears throat> CBD products. But I suspect the FDA uh, will take some time, and who knows what they'll come up with as far as the regulations. So it, I guess it leaves us as a state agency wondering, should we step in and create some regulation around that? And be interested when we have Q&A to hear from you, what do you think, where should that, where should that lie, somewhere in the middle? or not, or strictly regulated like other product that we sell uh, through our system. So Steve, one of the issues that, uh, that you alluded to was confusion uh, about uh, law enforcement confusion about uh, hemp versus, uh, versus THC cannabis. Um, is that an issue for your agency, for your inspectors, and uh, as, as you guys are policing, if that's the word, uh, the industry? It's really been less an issue for us and our inspectors as it has more been for law enforcement that they don't know what this is when it's on the road, right? And there's no quick test for THC content, so it's really the certification you can show on that. And I think uh, law enforcement really would like to have something that they could rely upon when you're transporting hemp, that it's hemp and they can look at it and believe in it. And uh, interstate commerce and in-state commerce can uh, readily occur. But that is definitely an issue. We see a lot of look-alike products, and I think the industry's all heard about you know, through the uh, Port of Portland, whenever they're confiscating hemp going out and testing it, the bulk of that is testing higher on THC limits. Uh, we know the practicalities of uh, producing hemp, right? No matter how hard and what you do when you have that field test, you know, you're probably going to get some residual THC growth. Some people are talking about a 1% limit on that. Um, somehow we need a way to, to better distinguish these products in the marketplace. And I think that's an issue right within the farm bill, right? I know we're having this the debate about can you have hot hemp for a while and how do you deal with it and how do you process that uh, and not having it confiscated. Well, this falls into this, I think, this one plant notion, right? You also have residual THC waste, which is not insignificant, and you're in a legal state. Why isn't that marketable and, and just waste in a state where THC is actually legal? So I think this... Um, certification of the testing of the cannabis plant and the clarity that we can put around how you're presenting it to the marketplace is probably the uh, look that we need to be able to see how we do that, how long it takes us to do that, 
how that uh, works within a federal system that really has defined our bifurcated system, right? The, the test on hemp came out in the field, at, you know, point three, well, why is that? Um, it's really set us down this path of dividing up this plant in a way that doesn't harmonize with high THC intoxicants and a look-alike substance and lower quality hemp produced or, or cannabis produced for, for uh, CBD and CBDG and all its component parts. Okay. Um, so as we, as we move forward, um, FDA, Rick alluded to the FDA. Um, I think you gave them a little more credit than they deserve, Rick. Uh, I think it was last, was it May or June that they had their hearing on, 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 uh, on, on CBD? Um, and I know there's been a lot of pressure from uh, politicians for them to do something, but there doesn't really seem to be any indication that that's at, that is happening. So is it going to be, do you think that the states are going to, do you anticipate Washington stepping in and, and, and putting some kind of regimen in place on, on CBD? Well, I think we're just starting a legislative session. We're in the midst of discussing that. I think it's probably more likely that we would than we wouldn't, to be honest with you. And um, the enforcement issue I just think with respect to that, we do get calls from enforcement or enforcement gets calls from, from law enforcement. I mean, we can find out whether they have a permit. It seems to me it would make sense that they have a manifest if they're transporting hemp so that it's clear that they have the right to do that and that they're permitted by the state. And typically that, that permit process and the plan's been approved by the feds, but I know that's been happening differently in the states. But I don't know why we would not try to track it as we do other products so that we don't have issues with respect to law enforcement. So I wanted to, to address that. But I think um, I suspect the FDA will take forever and then there'll be political pressure uh, that probably won't put a lot of teeth around the regulations, to be honest with you. That's what we've seen before. And again, there's lots of, I mean, we don't even have a legal product uh, nationwide right now. So I think there's uh, it's, I, I just don't sense there's, there's going to be a lot there. So I suspect we'll need to work with the industry to figure out how far do we need to go and how much regulation do we need around the product. Steve, do you think there's a, a, a possibility that hemp will be tracked in the way that THC cannabis is in Oregon? Um, I definitely think the FDA is going to be looking at tracking hemp and hemp products and their production in part because of its relationship to, to marijuana itself, in part because, um, and you're aware of the consternation in maybe some states that don't have the same kind of values that Oregon has about the farm bill really opening up hemp, and it's really confounded their sense about what they want to do about marijuana prosecutions and they're having trouble proving what the substance is um, and that prosecutors in some states, at least you read it in the press, right, aren't making prosecutions because it's expensive to do the testing to figure that out. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's happening. And I think the values of some states that really don't embrace uh, this new uh, cannabis world are are problematic when Rick and I meet with cannabis regulators and have re regularly, you know, their concerns about uh, uh, CBDs and 
hemp and hemp products with their system. They're struggling like we are, and I can assure you that they don't have all the values of it being a wide open product on the consumer market. So I do think uh, we will see uh, tracking, uh, and I think the leadership that at least the states from the West, I think, can provide is to help, and since the FDA, I think, is going to be forever in promulgating its rules has helped to pioneer some of those systems and rationalize them so they work for the development of this uh, of this industry. Okay. Um, I'm sure we could, I could continue to throw questions at these guys, but one of the things that I've found in, in uh, this industry is it, it moves very fast. Um, and those of us up here, at least me, um, I'm I don't often know what's going on out there in in your world, so I'd love it if um, if folks have have questions um, or comments uh, related to these topics. Um, I, I'd say let's let's open it up uh, to that. Go ahead. Hi, I am Dr. Adi Ray. My team and I produce a cannabis competition, the Cultivation Classic. So in years past, it's been largely, you know, type 1 THC dominant flowers, but we're expanding our hemp category massively this year. One of the reasons for that is that we, in our data, which is a, we collect data in a randomized double-blind fashion over the course of 30 days. So it's essentially a phase 1 clinical trial, but for recreation. Um, so what we've found in our data is that there's a difference between enjoyment and intoxication, and that the the consumer perception that THC is the valuable um, component of the plant, um, we're, we're hoping to use our data to differentiate that. Um, Steve, something that you said really resonated with me, which is what do we do with all this hot hemp, all this craft hemp, all of this flour that is useless for the you know, hemp market and also useless for the THC market. And, and from a public health perspective, from a harm reduction perspective, that's exactly the kind of plant that should be mass produced as like the Coors Light of recreation. Um, so what I would, what, what our team would like to see, um, in addition to more hemp flowers in the cup, um, and what our team would like to see is a pathway, a, a regulatory pathway for all of those, you know, hot hemp, heady hemp flowers to make it into the OLCC market. So really an interesting concept, and I think it's the practical approach that we've got to look at as we have the, as we're allowing the growing of this plant in just two different ways, and it doesn't, doesn't make sense to me that we don't harmonize in this state the way we treat the plant. If you remember when uh, the bowel measure was passing and people, when we were first crafting our rules, you know, the marijuana industry said, oh, we're going to produce the CBDs out of the marijuana plants. It's not going to have, it's going to have low THC. That's where our market was initially heading. And then, you know, this uh, developing hemp market uh, sort of supplanted it and took, and I'd argue, took that over. So we do have the equity issues then about how we regulate it, both our high, you know, our low acreage, highly regulated, high THC cannabis OLCC system versus more loosely regulated for some design values in the marketplace, but not clear how it's hitting it. So I, I welcome ideas around that. I think that's exactly what Oregon ought to be thinking about and pioneering because I do think the FDA is going to take forever and the extent that we can uh, bring some cogent public policy thought to that integration of, you know, 
presenting this plan in the marketplace in the way it should is valuable. Interesting. Um, I'm going off in a different place, but there's a couple of bills that were introduced in, in Washington, one to tax by potency level with respect to THC, um, the other to not allow vape pens above 10% THC. Consider that. I mean, that's drastic. Um, so I, I'm hearing, uh, I guess um, it would be good to learn more because I think that's the whole drive, uh, last time I was here in our marketplace, to the highest THC of everything, of every product that's available. Just give me the stuff that's got the highest potency. Very little education with consumers about do you really need that? You can probably have a much better experience doing this a little differently. Um, so be interested in, in your thoughts about that. But I just think we've got to do a better job and especially with the public health and prevention community hammering away at us, to be honest with you, that yeah. look what the market has become and what have you done? And, I, and I've been, I've pressed the industry a lot with respect to this. Do you see the long-term effect of this where we're seeing and some of the issues we're seeing with, with respect to psychosis right. uh, that's been happening for three or four years? We got to be real honest. Everybody wants to be honest about cannabis. We got to be honest about potency and how we educate the consumer around this product and product that's available today was not available 20 years ago, 30 years ago with respect to potency. It seems to be something that's really happened in the last 10 to 15 years, basically since the medical initiatives were passed mm -hmm. in 98 in our state, things began to change. And then with, with the advent of legalization for adult use, huge, I mean, just everything has changed with respect to product. And it follows the consumer. That's what happens with commodities. It's not surprising, but it seems like We've got to be real careful, um, both as a regulator in the industry, to not allow ourselves to be vulnerable to the attacks, that the only thing you care about is making the money, and we provide the consumer what they want without any lens about public health and safety around it. So I appreciated your comments. Absolutely. And, you know, this, you know, I, I, my academic job is in harm reduction, and, and I'm a neuroscientist, and, and from the harm reduction and public health perspective, there are a lot of misaligned incentives where, you know, the intake managers and wholesalers and retailers and cultivators are are all aware that the best, the superior agricultural products are the ones that aren't those 30% frankenflowers necessarily. Some, some of them are beautiful. Um, but from, from a public health perspective, you're exactly right. The psychosis issue, the cannabis use disorder, the hyperemesis, all of those risks are most closely related to potency. But trying to get those individuals who are making their money off of potency to fund a public awareness campaign that's a very misaligned incentive. So it really is up to the regulators. It's up to those universities. It's up to the institutions to put up billboards all around Seattle and Portland that say you're too high and begin the conversation about what the difference is between intoxication and enjoyment because there's plenty of room for enjoyment below a level that, that poses risks public health-wise. Hi, my name is Kelly Ritter. Um, I used to do medical years ago, and it was those CBD THC blends that got me into the industry anyway, because we were dealing with Parkinson's issues, uh, multiple sclerosis issues, bipolar issues, and it's the flavonoids and cannabinoids 
that I think we really need to be researching. At this time, we're looking at uh, a legislative session again, and uh, the Ways and Means and uh, Joint Ways and Means Committees are really the way to uh, affect change in our systems. Um, one of the problems that I have as a recreational grower was the time it took to get my hemp uh, license through OLCC. No problem, I had a week and Sonny had it right here, I was doing great, but I could not get responses from your office, I could not get things approved, and it was July 15th. So, I planted on the other side of the fence, that fence I had to pay for way back when, when I started, that isn't now even necessary, um, and now I've got a violation. So, how can I effectively help you help me make this easier transition? Well, I'm not sure I can get you out of a violation, but well, uh, I do sure. see your Elin's, position. Elin's <laughs> on it. <laughs> I, but, but, you know, there's no doubt that we've had uh, trouble. Uh, you know, our licensing process has gotten bogged down and slow, and there's no doubt about it. Our recent you rules. need more people? Our recent, it's not just more people for all of it, but we do need more people. That right. would definitely help. Part of it was the IT system that we put in place for licensing didn't deal with renewals and put us uh, behind. A part of it was uh, that the legislature wasn't interested in giving us a lot of people initially, and then they came up with a moratoria on the producer side. Some of that had to do with supply and the dynamics that were going on there, arguably about where we were, you know, a year ago. Um, so we do need more people. We need to get a better licensing system. I think the rules we put in place recently will help us. They provide more certainty, more guidelines. So if you're getting up in the queue, you better be ready and know what you're doing so that we can push you out the door. Uh, if you're not, we'll push you in a hold and we'll let those other people who are ready uh, spend their time with uh, our licensing uh, personnel to get the applications done that will definitely help with the speed it's not going to solve all of our problems but it should make it better so yeah. a combination of all those things it's going to be a while before we have a licensing system in place uh, we are just getting ready to uh, begin to go out for the RFP on that and that's going to take a while so I think we're we're two years before we see that it's been a slow and painful process, and it's been a learning curve for the entire industry. Yeah. But I had to do something in order to make money and keep my farm. Because yeah. it's us business people, it's us farmers that are out there on the front line, been doing this for a while. And it's our bread and butter and how I feed my children. So anything I can do this legislative session to help you get this through and make this streamlined process any more effective, let me know. Thank you. Thanks. Tim. Hi, I'm Tim Shaughnessy, and I think as producers and processors, we all feel your pain uh, here in Oregon. But my question uh, to you, Steve Marks, is uh, in particular, are you having conversations with Rick, and are you having conversations with your counterparts in California? And at some point, are we going to see reciprocity between our states? How do we start doing business across state lines? Thank you. Well, that's a great question. I feel like... Uh, 
being in the West and being Oregon, uh, probably, you know, Rick's got a little more. He started off with a more contained system than we did. California's system has nothing, uh, my, you know, they need big corrections to get that aligned. And I think that really hurt the movement for interstate commerce because, you know, they haven't got their compliant system moving up in terms of licenses. They're working very hard. We haven't really spent as much time with California as regulators as we'd like to because they've been so busy working on their system. Uh, but Rick and, and I and the West Coast states with Colorado uh, have been meeting regularly looking at how we harmonize regulations, how we prepare for a system of commerce that makes sense. And we've had discussions about, I brought forward, Rick served, was uh, nice enough to serve on a panel with me at the uh, National Conference of State Liquor Administrators where we began to talk about these ideas as, you know, we have interstate commerce around alcohol that's very convoluted and what's going to happen with cannabis and shouldn't we start thinking and planning uh, for what that might look like. So we introduced those ideas to the world. And then you have the Oregon bill uh, that we're actually going to look for input from uh, not just within the state on how export might be set up, but also to ask for comments from all those regulators that are are, are now meeting on a, a full-time basis. And Rick, you might just want to talk a little bit more about the interest of the regulatory community we've got so, coming So down. you might be surprised to learn that your regulator's a trendsetter. So um, that export bill that you all passed uh, last year was interesting because we've been regulating uh, alcohol just as uh, Steve has in Washington for over 80 years. And reciprocity was the first way that wineries could sell to one another or sell into other states because the three-tier Tidehouse laws didn't allow that. So reciprocity makes sense. I don't remember who the gentleman is that raised it. But the idea, I thought, that, that you all had of being ready when prohibition is lifted to allow for exports immediately, I was kind of jealous because I told Steve, I go, dang, you're going to be ready because, you know, what will happen when it opens up, all the states will do what you did with the export market. They're going to want to create – uh, that ability for you to go nationwide, and why wouldn't you with your brands and everything else? Um, so I think I think he's pretty forward-looking. So you're aware we get caught up in these licensing and enforcement issues. I'll talk a little bit about that in a second about what we're doing in Washington around that. But but Steve, uh, the West, um, interesting enough, and shouldn't be surprising. First four states to legalize adult use were Colorado, Oregon, Washington, Alaska. And the first meeting of the regulators three years ago uh, in April was those four states. And we just met recently in Maryland, and there were 27 states, Canada, three provinces, uh, and, and local jurisdictions uh, who were invited also. So we've been meeting every six months. And of course, because of Steve's leadership, we're hosting, or, uh, Portland is hosting the next Cannabis Regulators Roundtable. Uh, and, and that's really what we're doing to the question about best practices, model regulations and legislation. We only have a two and a half days. We cover everything you could possibly think of. We have different national speakers come in to share. The last, the last meeting we had, the, we pick a topic, was public health and prevention. Uh, we wanted to hear specifically from national 
agencies, uh, departments, and then also other state uh, entities that are in public health and prevention. Uh, and we talked about some of the issues I was just talking about. Um, but yeah, the idea, and, and we're actually in Portland looking at forming an association, a formal association of the regulators. So um, we do talk a lot. And Jim Burick from Colorado, uh, Steve and I, and Erica, who was with Alaska, and Chilchi took on a new job, uh, have spent a lot of time over the years. We don't want to do what the alcohol industry did where all of the states have totally different regulations and laws. And it's a mess for the industry and the alcohol industry to figure out, and, and of course they're national, international companies, that I've got to hire people in each state to, keep, to be compliant rather than uniform uh, model legislation and regulations that say, we're gonna be consistent in how we regulate this marketplace. Because what I think is national prohibition is gonna take some time to be lifted. It's not gonna happen as quick as, as I think it should. Um, I don't think it will. So the states are gonna be moving. What I suspect is, and it's Steve's idea, that a commission be formed of the regulators of cannabis that are legal to help the federal government understand when prohibition is lifted, how will it occur? What will the states, and it may be an alcohol model where the states' rights are, are bigger than the federal government. And in alcohol, the states have more rights through the 21st Amendment to set regulation above what the feds do. It might be a model that works for cannabis. Steve actually has a paper he's written about it. Um, but I would say we're, we're making every effort to spend as much as time as we can together uh, to create similar systems that make sense and and begin after seven years now. It's hard to imagine. It's been seven years since Colorado and Washington legalized. At the time that this happened, oh, you know what? I'm going to stop because we've got people who want to ask oh, questions. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Brad Zussman with uh, Mellow Vibes and Green Valley Chocolates here in Oregon. Question is for both Steve and Rick. Um, I have uh, part of a manufacturing facility where I'm in a change of ownership right now here in Oregon. And we're also in the process of getting ready to build a second CBD manufacturing facility to be able to do creams, tinctures, topicals, uh, edibles. My question to both of you would be is uh, I am all for the metrics in the CBD side. Um, if we were able to have a process put in place where a open market CBD kitchen is able to go through the regulations, get the metrics, all the compliance, everything that is needed, will the states be open to being able to get those products that are manufactured in those facilities into the THC stores, whether it's Washington, California, Oregon, and on top of that, when we look at the labels that go that are applied to the different types of packaging will we have some type of a universal symbol or code to be able to allow the hemp products to be able to flow through to the recreational stores and then in addition to that would the recreational manufacturing facilities be able to manufacture CBD for the open market if they are fo also following the same type of rules because then you get into the crossover where you actually have a THC component in the facility as well as a CBD component and then you have the, the uh, possibility of getting the cross-contamination or a mix-up and stuff like that and 
I would love to get some type of clarification because building these facilities costs hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars to be able to do. And it would be great if you could have a CBD kitchen on one side, a THC on another one, and be able to universally push packaging equipment into the middle to be able to package both versus having to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to duplicate the same thing in the same facility. Before Steve answers, I want to just jump in and say we've already got THC and CBD together. I mean, there was uh, the case in Lynn County that I'm sure many of you heard about where a processor was charged with manufacture of marijuana product um, because they went into their facility, the authorities went into the facility and, and found a product that during the processing process had gone over the, the line and they deemed that a marijuana product. Um, and of course, as you've alluded to, Steve, there's there's THC that has to be remedi remediated from from uh, uh, hemp products uh, already. So they're already together. So it makes perfect sense to to put in place some kind of way for them to coexist, more clear way for them to uh, coexist. Anyway, so I'll answer from my perspective, which won't help you a bit politically, right? I'm just an administrator. I have a commission that takes a vote. The legislature looks at these things. But I think that's what I'm talking about. It makes perfect sense to have it, uh, integrated production, uh, processing, and management so long, so long as, and I think we need to work on, how we test and certify that the components that come out in packaging are, in fact, uh, those low CBD products or that high THC products. And I think, you know, the, uh, our, our industry around cannabis is going to uh, increasingly be delineated by our ability to have faith in, if not more than faith, faith in science and what it is presented to the marketplace, that it's accurate, that we have the right disclaimers, that we have the right numerical values on there for what exists here, and that it doesn't have things in it that aren't supposed to be there. Well, uh, I, I agree completely. With I think we can do one more, maybe? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> All right, so I'm a grower out of Washington, so these questions are for you, Rick. You mentioned a percentage of THC to sell in a recreational cannabis retail. Is there a specific limit, or is it just some THC? 0 0.3. 0.3? Okay, interesting. Um, and then if you are looking to sell in current regulations and recommendations in a recreational cannabis retail with hemp, should you follow the regulations that exist for products that are already going in that retail? Or can you get away with not doing that? What's yeah, your recommendation? That, well, that's, that's the debate right now. Okay. And I wouldn't know. I, I, I'm just, I, I want to have that discussion with, you know, inside our organization and then with licensees also to figure out what that should be. I tend to think just from what we just heard that it should be some regulation. But let me share, like when you talk about traceability, the traceability system we created five years ago, the traceability system I would create today would be very, very different. Wineries, when they report, report their production and they pay their taxes on the 20th of the month. We created these systems that are very complicated, very difficult, very expensive, because you know what happened seven years ago? We were worried the DOJ was gonna move against 
the system. So we created a very strict system for licensure, for enforcement, for traceability. We had to live up to the Cole memo. Remember, that came nine months after legalization in Colorado and Washington. I'll be honest with you. We were just about ready to issue licenses. We didn't have any guidance from the feds that we were going to be allowed to move forward. That is a totally different world than we live in today, where we have 11 states with D.C., and we have all but three states in the country that have not allowed some form of medical cannabis to be sold and provided to patients. Now, in the South and in the Midwest, it's very strict. Proponents don't believe it's legal, but it is legal um, and very strict. The point of that being that uh, what I, why I'm saying that is we've got to recalibrate we call it Cannabis 2.0 in our state. We've got to look at how we put the system together and back up and be more responsive to the needs of business because, my God, if I were you, I'd be strangling under the regulations that we put in place in our state. We did that to keep the system in place, to keep it legal. It was very strict. But we're looking at our enforcement practices. We're looking at a lot of things in our state right now, and we need to be we need, we need to look at this differently. We need to say things have changed substantially in the last seven years. We need to back up a little bit and assist our licensees. Um, th thanks. Uh, great questions. I, I wish we could take more. Uh, unfortunately, we are running out of time. Uh, before we do uh, wrap up, I know that Steve uh, wanted to talk about, you know, we have this, uh, we have this connection between uh, the, the hemp and, and marijuana regulatory structures, but there's also a connection between the hemp and the alcoholic beverages uh, regulatory structures. So let's yeah. talk about that for a yeah. second. Yeah, so let me get to that. I want to just uh, build off a couple things that Rick talked about in closing here. Um, you know, Rick did, uh, you know, that scheme we put in place responsive to the coal memorandum and Rick's system went earlier than Oregon's system. Uh, I think uh, we're a little better, but one of the things that we did, and you know, is that we—I mean, a little better because we nice, had that we had nice we we had the experience of looking at what they did in Colorado, particularly around packaging. It was a huge advantage to us to see their experience in starting that out. So, um, two things. One is, as Rick is looking at. Um, making changes to their program we need to look at changes to ours we have you know we put penalties in they're all category one and we settle them and we try to rationalize it and it works it's not very good for you i don't think it's very equitable but we make it equitable by sort of hitting our standards uh, i know there's going to be sort of a what i call a safe harbor legislation or amendment introduced in this session i gotta tell you i've thought we've needed that kind of system for a while so we can go out and on those non-major violations if you request if if you're a, a licensee on their marijuana side if you request that we come out and look with you we can look at your operations for those things that are not diversion taking cash to cartels selling to minors that you know we can do the fix it ticket and if you get it fixed then you don't have a violation that i think supports a more efficient operation for us and i think that's a great discussion for olcc to have for legislation to give us some authorization to work with the industry to do that um yeah we're here we're about then um, and then on CBD and alcohol, for those of, the, of you that are concerned with it, you know, we regulate alcohol as well. Uh, we needed to be, I think, have fidelity to the law on both sides. So we did 
uh, put restrictions in. Those restrictions are intended to match state law. So it's an adulterant, but you better have your certificate of analysis if it's in the marketplace. And, um, and for manufacturing, we probably went broad on hemp uh, because we were sort of, we wrote a cannabis-based regulation and it got beyond CBDs to some of the uh, other components of hemp that we would prohibit in the manufacture of alcohol. Um, we're going to come back and make a change to that and just simply say something like, or as otherwise approved by TTB, which is the federal entity that uh, certifies that Oregon relies on for the certification of alcohol. So we went a little broad. We're going to dial that back a bit, but all of that was intended for us to make sure that bars, uh, our own liquor agents, all complied with existing state law. Okay. Thank you. I think they're ready to kick us out. Thanks a lot, everybody. Our thanks to the producers of the 2020 Hemp and CBD Connects Conference for sharing this recording with us. You can find them at ConnectsHempEvents.com. That's C-O-N-N-E-X-H-E-M-P-Events.com. And special thanks to Hood Collective at HoodCollective, one word, dot com, which engineered the recording at the Hemp and CBD Connects Conference. Again, this podcast was recorded in February 2020. Make sure to keep an eye out for new podcasts and other communications from the OLCC to stay current and compliant with the rules. The In the Weeds podcast is a public information service produced by the Oregon Liquor Control Commission to communicate with current and prospective members of Oregon's regulated marijuana industry. Our theme music is a portion of the song, The Afterlife, by Yacht, licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license from Creative Commons. For more information about Oregon's recreational marijuana program and this podcast, visit marijuana.oregon.gov. You can listen to In the Weeds through SoundCloud or subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Josh Fisher for producing this podcast. I'm Mark Pettinger. Until next time, keep listening. And until then, keep reading the rules.